Uh, let's stand together, and uh, we are in a series called uh, The Secrets of Happiness, and uh, we are looking today at 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, and if you're not familiar with the Bible, all you've got to do is go to the New Testament, which is about two-thirds to the Bible, and then about a third through there, uh, two-thirds through there is the book of 2 Corinthians, right after the book of 1 Corinthians. And uh, it's chapter 8, verses 1 to 15, but it's going to be on the screen for you. If you've got a device, well, you know how to operate that. And uh, so I'm going to read the green, and you're going to read the black. And this is what it says. We want you to know, brothers and sisters, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in, severe, for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed into, in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging as earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, we see that, see that you excel in this grace, act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter I give my judgment, this benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it, out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written... Whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Nice job. This warm weather agrees with you. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We praise you and thank you for the living word, who is Jesus Christ, and the written word. And we pray today that you would give us a voice to speak clearly. Lord, that you would give us ears to hear minds to understand, hearts to comprehend, and as we leave this place, to go out into our homes, our neighborhoods, our workplaces, our places of education, and wherever it is that we go this coming week, that we may live out your truth as disciples of Christ, as Christ followers, in tangible, meaningful ways. For his name's sake, we ask these mercies. Amen. Why don't you be seated? Now, let me begin with a question this morning, and the question is, when affirmation <clears throat> comes your way, how do you receive it? When you get a compliment or somebody 
gives you credit for something. How do you receive it? Well, if you and I, we are like most people, we struggle with compliments. We're not sure what to do. We feel a little uncomfortable. We feel a little awkward. And so when we come to our text, Paul has high praise, high compliments for this church. Uh, The churches, rather, in Macedonia. And so they are, for him, a model to everyone else, the model of the Macedonian churches. And so Paul affirms them. He sort of gives them a compliment. He praises them for their generosity. Now, let me give you a little bit of background so we understand the text. Um, First of all is that there is a severe food shortage in Jerusalem amongst particularly the Jewish Christians. And we know from history that during this time there was actually a a famine, uh, a drought in Palestine that led to a famine. And so the Christians in Palestine are struggling. Matter of fact, many of them have lost their livelihood because of the drought. And many of them are hungry. They are starving, actually, is the case. And Paul, when he gets wind of this, he, wherever he goes, travels throughout the world, uh, preaching the gospel, particularly to the Gentile churches, he begins to raise aid to help those in Jerusalem. Now, the second thing you need to keep in mind, or we need to keep in mind, is this. That from the very beginning... Between the Jews and the Gentiles, there has been animosity, there has been tension, there has been friction. And this animosity and friction has overflowed into the Christian church. And so between the Gentile Christians and the Jewish Christians, there is this friction, this tension. But the churches of Macedonia, which are Philippi and Berea, and uh, Thessalonica, they have sort of riven, driven, risen above this racism. Now, the other thing that's important to know is the Macedonians themselves are a very impoverished people. First of all, that they are under severe persecution for being Christians. And many of them, because of that and because of other circumstances, they are poor themselves. They are physically afflicted. And they are financially depleted. And Paul says that they are described as a, that, excuse me, in a severe test of affliction and extreme poverty. But the Macedonian Christians were generous despite their own issues. And then we come to this statement where Paul says, we want you to know, he wants us to know about the grace of God that is given among the churches of Macedonia. Now, for me, it doesn't sound much like grace, does it? They are physically afflicted, and they are impoverished themselves. So what is this grace, then, that Paul is talking about? Now, when we talk about Christians and happiness, Or when we are in difficult circumstances in that context, one of the verses that we are very often here and is quoted, and we ourselves probably have quoted to people, to fellow Christians who have been in difficult circumstances, and that is is Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, that all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purposes. 
Now, there's a number of things that is suggested by Romans chapter 8, verse 28. The first one is this, is that bad things happen to good people. And bad things happen to God's people. That our circumstances are not necessarily better because we are Christ followers. And to suggest that bad things are actually good things disguised is a little creepy. Bad things happen to God's people. The second thing that Romans chapter 8 verse 28 suggests is that things never work together for good on their own. Most times, things fall down when they're left to themselves. Uh, you've heard the second law of thermodynamics. I have no idea what the first one is or the third one is, but the second one is that everything tends toward decay. Whether it is your car, if you don't take care of your vehicle, whether it is your home, if you don't take care of it, or even our health, our bodies, if we don't take care of them, they will tend toward decay faster than needs to be. And there is a sentimental idea out there that suggests that things ought to work right, that things ought to go right, and it's normal for things to go right. Well, the reality is that's not really true. If good happens, if things come together for good for us, it's because of God's grace. If our health remains intact, it's simply because God is holding us up. If somebody loves us and we have someone to hold our hand, it's because God is bringing all things together. When things work together for good in our lives, it's because of God's grace. We do not believe in happenstance or circumstance or, or sorry, we don't believe in, in happenstance or coincidence or in luck, or any of those things, we believe in the providential care and sovereignty of our God. So, we understand these things. The third thing that we need to remember when we quote, or when we hear, or when we use Romans chapter 8, verse 28, is simply this, that sometimes an eternal perspective is required. When bad things happen, God does work them out for good, but you and I may not see the evidence of it in this life. It takes more than a day or a week or a year or a decade. Sometimes it takes a lifetime and beyond that for God, for us to see that God works all things together for good for those of us who love Him. The promise is not that God will take bad things and he'll work them in, uh, uh, that he'll just sort of, every bad patch in our lives, God will just sort of smooth over. That's not what the promise is. The promise is that God will take the bad things and he will work them for good in the end. But the end is not always in our lifetime. There needs to be an eternal perspective. But God ensures 
that bad circumstances will work together for our lives in its totality, ultimately. And this is the grace of God that our text wants us to know that is existing amongst the Macedonian Christians. Now, it might have also something to do with this. The last, the uh, verse 5 of our text says this, that the Macedonian Christians gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with his will. Now, that's an incredible compliment to give and to receive. But it's also a profound biblical and Christian principle. Because if you and I give ourselves first to the Lord as spouses, as parents, as children, as fellow Christians, as employers, as employees, as teachers, as students, if we give ourselves first to the Lord, it is going to have a profound effect on our lives, not just in the area of generosity. It is going to change the face of our marriages. It is going to change the face of our children in light of our parenting. And it's going to change the face of our families when siblings begin to give themselves first to the Lord. It's going to change how we do business. It's, how, it's going to change how we function as an employee. It's going to change how we teach and how we receive education. It's going to change how we live in our neighborhoods. And they gave themselves first to the Lord. And then to us in keeping with the will of God. And so the Macedonian Christians are models. They are examples to be followed by the Corinthians and us. But here's the message to the Corinthians and the message to us. Paul says he talks about this act of grace. Matter of fact, he uses it twice in verses 6 and 7 of chapter 8. Now, the dynamic in the Corinthian church is completely different than the dynamic in the Macedonian church. Two things. First of all, the Corinthian church was very wealthy. They had some poor people, but generally, the church was well-to-do because they lived in one of the richest cities in the entire ancient world because Corinth had one of the most active seaports in the ancient world. And because of that, the city was wealthy and the church was wealthy. But the other thing about the Corinthians is that they were highly charismatic. They were a Pentecostal church to the extreme. They were free in the Holy Spirit. Matter of fact, so free that Paul actually had to write uh, the first Corinthians and then the second letter to the Corinthians to sort of rein in how they were free in the Holy Spirit to bring some order and some continuity and to move them away from the immorality that came as a result of their freedom that gave them a license to sin. 
Paul says to them, you are free in the Holy Spirit. But you are not quite as free when it comes to your generosity. And Paul says to them, he says, but as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. In other words, Paul says, as they and as we excel in the gifts of the Holy Spirit, we also and they also need to excel in the act of the grace of generosity. Now, some of us, are naturally generous. And others of us, we have to work at learning to become more generous. Now, I, like you, have met some people who are very generous. And they are generous to a fault where they give stuff away and give money away and anything that they can do to help somebody else. But here's an interesting thing. Of the two people that I have in my mind right now, of how generous they are, I have never seen them without matter of fact. It seems that things just come their way. Money seems to come their way. Goodwill seems to come their way. Opportunity seems to come their way. And I have seen this over and over and over again. And so Paul says, I'm looking for this act of grace, this act of generosity in us, in you and me, in the Corinthians. And it's based on verse 9. Now, verse 9 brings us again to a topic that we have talked about quite a bit over the last three, four weeks. And that is a generous God. I love something Joseph Stowell wrote a number of years ago. He said this. He said, he is the God of muchness. Don't you like it when people invent words? There's no word called muchness. He invented it to make a point of how inexpressible is the generosity of God. He is the God of muchness, of lavish, abundant, overflowing reserves. He is a generous God. And the muchness of God is illustrated for us in verse 9. And here it is. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Now, Verse 9 reminds me of another text that talks about exchange. And some of you will recognize it, and some of you may not. So because of that, I've put it in your notes and put it on the screen. It's Isaiah chapter 61, verse 3, and it reads like this. To grant to those who mourn in Zion... To give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. 
that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Now, one word can make all the difference. The word instead is repeated three times in Isaiah chapter 61, verse 3. And the repetition makes all the difference between a life of unhappiness and a life of happiness and joy. You see, the word instead is about exchange. Rather than there being one thing, there's something else. In place of what we might expect there to be, there is something different. Instead represents a radical difference. Now, it does not mean just adding a little something to what's already there or taking away a little something from what is already there. It is talking about a contrast. It is talking about an exchange. Instead is a gospel word. And 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9 emphatically tells us that exchange is possible. About 250 to 300 years ago, throughout Canada, there were these things called trading posts. And trappers would, over the season, particularly the winter, would put out their trap lines, and they would accumulate these animal skins, beaver and bear and fox and rabbit and what have you. But they didn't want the animal skins, so they went to the trading post, and they traded what they had and what they didn't want for the things that they did want. Food and tools and different things like that. Now, we still do that today. Some of you did it just a couple of weeks ago. We got something for Christmas that we didn't particularly want. Or that we didn't particularly like. And rather than just sitting at home and thinking to ourselves, I don't really like this and I don't really want that, what we did is we went to the store and we traded it for something we wanted. Matter of fact, we are so used to this that we actually now give gift receipts so that the people that we give our gifts to, if they don't like what we give them or don't want what we give them, they can march down to the store where we bought it and they can exchange it for something they want. If you don't want the way things are, if you're not happy with things never changing. If you're tired of there being no hope. If you're tired of going it alone. If you don't want the ashes anymore. If you don't want feeling weak anymore. If you're tired of being brokenhearted. If you're tired of being a prisoner and a captive to some habit. 
If you don't want the sadness anymore and the unhappiness anymore and the joylessness anymore, if you don't want the sin anymore, then take heart. Because verse 9 tells us that exchanges are possible. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ That though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And then there's this. Surprisingly, the last verse of our text, verse 15, says, as it is written... Whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. The quote is from Exodus chapter 16. It's the miracle in the desert. What is it? It's the miracle in the desert. But what is it? Doesn't it feel like Abba Constello, Abba Constello, who's on first? Well, let me, for those of you that do not know, and for those of you that have known and need to be reminded, what is it? Is manna. Manna literally means, what is it? So the people of Israel are delivered out of Egypt, somewhere between 600,000 to 2 million people, and they've come out of Egypt, and they are in the desert, and they are hungry, of course. And God says, here's what's going to happen. In the morning when you wake up, there's going to be a dew. And when the dew lifts and dries, there will be this food on the ground. And the people see the dew lift and they look on the ground and they reach down and they pick it up and they say, what is it? Manna, that's what it means. It's the translation of what is it? And they chewed it. And they fried it, and they baked it, and they broiled it. And they did everything they could do, made pizza out of it. But they ate every day, and that's the lesson of the manna and our text. Here it is. If God is able to supply 600,000 to 2 million people food every day for 40 years in the desert... Do we not think that he can supply our need as well? And because of God's grace and generosity, we too can be gracious and generous. Or we can can begin to learn to be gracious and generous in any and every circumstance. That's the lesson of the manna. But there's a stipulation. There's always a stipulation. And the stipulation is what verse 15 is referring to. That the people of Israel were told that they were not to gather too much, 
that they were only to gather what they were to, enough for them for the day and for them to eat, nothing more. But being who we are and who they are, they did not listen. Now, why do you suppose that is? All human beings, me, you, all human beings are selfish and self-serving. And some of us, some human beings, are incredibly selfish and self-serving. This past week, I was uh, looking for something in the bottom drawer of my desk. And uh, when I was looking there, I found this. Do you know what this is? It's a Pez candy dispenser. This one has Kermit the Frog on it. Now, somebody gave me this in Barry for some crazy reason. We were doing something, and this came. And I don't know who it is because I lost the note, but I kept the dispenser. And then all of a sudden, I remembered the book that I read a while ago, a couple of years ago, called The Spider and the Starfish. And in the book, I discovered that Pez candy dispensers is the reason why eBay happened. Pierre Omidar had a fiancé, and his fiancé's favorite item was a Pez candy dispenser. And she was trying to find ways to, to accumulate, by hobby, any number of different kinds of Pez candy dispensers. And so Omidar set up the beginnings of eBay so his fiance could find her favorite candy dispenser. But I read on. And while reading on, I discovered that from the get-go, it said this, that eBay declared, now listen to this, we believe people are basically good. We believe everyone has something to contribute and we believe that an honest, open environment can bring out the best in people. Isn't that great? I love that. Trust and honesty and openness. However, when eBay acquired PayPal, they weren't quite so confident in the trustworthiness and the honesty and the openness of people. And so they made sure that all the checks and balances, necessary safety and accountability structures were in place to protect everyone's financial information on their PayPal accounts. They're not quite as trustworthy now and confident in people's goodness, honesty, and openness. In Exodus 20, verse 
sorry, Exodus 16, verse 20 says this, that the people gathered more manna than they needed. And the next day, what had happened is, is that what was left over rotted and became filled with worms. Now, this is the lesson of the manna and the maggots. There is such a thing as too little. But there's also such a thing as too much. Now let that soak in for a moment. Now you know, of course, and if you don't, I'm going to tell you, that the spiritual reality of this is the manna that the bread that came down from heaven, the New Testament tells us, Jesus tells us, is him. In John chapter 6, verse 35, he says, And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So Jesus, the manna that God gave the people of Israel in, in, in the desert, is a symbol and a sign of Jesus Christ. What happens... When Jesus isn't enough. And we want more than Jesus. What happens? What happens when God's provision is not enough? And we want more than God's provision. We get this discontentment. Now, there is a correlating story to this manna story in the book of Numbers. And so you can imagine, after a number of days, weeks, months, years, that the people of Israel were tired of the same thing. I love pizza. But every day, three times a day, I wouldn't mind a change. And there were a group of people who were unhappy with manna, and they started to crave meat. But worse than that, they actually began to crave going back to Egypt. Because there, they had melons, and they had garlic, and they had all kinds of good things. And God says, fine. Absolutely fine. No problem. I'll give you meat. There's an old saying that says, it's a Spanish saying that says, when the gods want to punish us, they answer our prayers. And God says, okay, fair enough. I'm going to give you meat. But not for one day, and not for five days, and not for ten days, and not for twenty days, but for a full month. You're going to eat meat till it comes out your nostrils. And it is loathsome to you. The psalmist, in Psalm 106, verse 15, gives a commentary on this. And he says, And he, God, gave them what they asked, but sent a wasting disease among them. 
The King James says he gave them their request, but he sent leanness into their soul. What if leanness to our souls is regret? We need to be careful what we wish for, what we strive for, because we just might get it. And it come at an incredible cost. And the costs almost always end up in some form of regret, estrangement, unnecessary separation, broken hearts, broken relationships, broken lives, broken health mentally and physically, even premature death. The cost is loss and pain and bitterness and, re- and resentment and depression, and the list goes on and on and on. Be careful what we ask for, wish for, strive for, because we just might get it, but at an incredible cost that we may pay for the rest of our lives. Somebody wrote, We don't find happiness. We make happiness. We choose happiness. One of the most famous statements by Viktor Frankl, who was a Holocaust survivor, he said this, Everything can be taken from a man slash woman, but one thing, the last of the human freedoms. To choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances. To choose one's own way. I want you to close your eyes. You will, just for a moment of privacy. All around the room. And I want to ask this question. I got a couple, actually. Let me start from the end and work forward. First of all is this. In this room or watching online, you've been asking, you've been striving, and you've been wishing. And today, there is a warning that has gone out to us. Be careful what we strive for, what we wish for. When Jesus isn't enough and when God's provision isn't enough and we want more, at what cost? And if that's you this morning and I don't know who you is, but if there's anybody of us in this room that you're there, And the Spirit of God has put His finger on your heart. And you know it's you. And you need to do business with Him today. 
And not in, just in this room in this moment, but when you leave this place. And my last question is this. Ask yourself this question. Am I a generous person naturally? You know the answer. I know the answer to it for me. And you know the answer to it for you. Am I a generous person naturally? Or do I need to learn, work at learning to become more generous? And I can't answer that question for you either. And then the last thing is simply this. Is there anybody in the room watching online or for those of you that are, going, are watching online a couple of weeks later on the archive, is there anybody that you would like to make an exchange? you got something you don't want and you'd like to trade it in and exchange it for something else. Is there anybody in the room, is there anybody online that you'd like to make an exchange? I'm not asking you to raise your hands. This is about you, privately, individually. But in a moment, I'm going to get everybody in the room to stand. And then I am going to bring you through a prayer called the prayer of repentance. And to make it easier for you, and not to single you out, I'm going to ask everybody to pray this prayer with you. But before we do that, I'd like to pray for you and us. Heavenly Father, it is in the precious name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and your Son, that we come to you. And we pray that your word would quicken our hearts and our minds and our lives so that we just don't listen on Sunday morning and nothing ever seems to change. But it is evident this morning that you're speaking. And you're speaking to me. And you're speaking to people in this room. And you're speaking to people on the internet. You're at work now. And we ask that we would be, you would help us, Holy Spirit, to be sensitive and susceptible to what you're saying to us. And we pray that you would help us by giving us courage that we may live out your truth in practical ways. Lord, for those who are going to make the exchange in just a moment, may they know at the moment they say yes, you rush toward them and you begin to bring about the exchange and the change. And may it be thus and so, in the great and glorious name of Jesus Christ our Lord, amen. So I want you to stand with me. If you want to exchange your sin for God's forgiveness, 
You want to exchange your past for God's preferred future for you. You want to exchange the pain for God's comfort, your doubt for God's hope. And the ashes of your life you want to exchange for the joy of the Lord. And I'm going to invite you to pray this prayer with me. I renounce Satan and all the spiritual forces of wickedness that rebel against God. I renounce the evil powers of the world which corrupt and destroy the creatures of God. I renounce all sinful desires that draw me from the love of God. I turn to Jesus Christ and accept Him as Savior. I put my whole trust in His grace and love. And I promise to follow and obey Him as my Lord. Amen. Now, if you prayed that prayer and you were sincere about it, then that divine exchange has already begun. And it will continue. So before we go, I want to just pray as a closing prayer. Heavenly Father, again, for those that have prayed the prayer today for the very first time, Lord, we ask that they will know your grace, that, Lord, that as they leave this place, they will feel like they have had a spiritual bath. They'll feel like a weight has lifted from their shoulders. And, Lord, that you, by your Holy Spirit, would lead them and guide them and protect them, and that you would bring things and people in their way that would help them and us in our spiritual growth and maturity. And this we pray in Christ's name, for his name's sake. Amen.